This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Martin Vaneski about his journey from a designer of coupons to one of the most innovative designers of our time. He also talks about what experimentation really is and about his use of unorthodox materials. One thing I'm always trying to find is that connective tissue between the past and the present and the impossibility of holding time still and working with materials that do fall apart. Here is Debbie Millman. If Martin Vineski's graphic designs were a sound, it would be a rambunctious, jubilant parade. Martin Vineski teaches at the California College of the Arts and masterminds the design firm Appetite Engineers. He makes intricate cut-and-paste mashups of old-school typography, discarded ephemera, manipulated images, and tactile scraps that build and balance in a teetering mass that seems to leap right off the page. Fideski likes to think of his work as a busy urban intersection. His innovative use of type, collage, and found materials have made him one of the great innovators in design, and his influence runs deep. Welcome to Design Matters, Martin. Thank you, Debbie. It's great to have you here. I appreciate that. So I have to ask, what is it with you and spirographs? Spirograph was one of the first toys that I remember and my very favorite toy. I loved it so much that I became a math major first because I loved the mathematics behind it. When I look back now at it, I like how it treated kids like adults. We're giving you instructions on how to do these complicated drawings and the combination of you using your hand and the machine. So you still had to be dexterous and you still had to learn to balance it. But if you did that, it provided you with that added push to make these beautiful drawings. And I love that. And yet you seem to also enjoy not following the directions of this spirograph. <laughs> right. When I did the Sundance Film Festival work, we broke the spirographs. So right. I got a lot of them on eBay, and we cracked them and jammed them with other materials just to enhance. The, so you had to push harder and try harder to stay on track. And it's that jitteriness that I thought made these new drawings come to life. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the trajectory of your career before you were breaking spirographs, working for <laughs> Sundance. Back when you were in your 30s, you made a life-changing decision. You were a self-described hack <laughs> at an Oakland marketing firm designing coupons and trade brochures, and you hated it. In fact, you have declared that you were embarrassed at that time to tell people what you did. So why were you doing it? Well, Debbie, now that you've revealed my past, um, <laughs> I was very naive, and I didn't know any better. And I have a tendency to like comfort and steadiness. And so if I'm on a job, I tend to stay with it for way too long. And also, I fell into the trap where people started telling me how good I was. But being good within the coupon world is different than being good in the design world. And it took a long time for me to finally start seeing this exciting design seeping out all around me. That's one reason why I also have taken to teaching so much, because I don't want students to fall into the same traps that I did. Oh, I hear you. Yeah. I and do. To, and to really push themselves, even when they're told that they're good, to not 
believe it, to really push all the way through. I want to I come back to that, but you did say something just now that piqued my curiosity. What is the criteria for a good coupon designer? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it, it, to get all of the information into as small a space as possible, along with the barcode and anything that they have to fill in. At the time, when I started wanting to go back to school, I took a class in typography at night all the way down at UC Santa Cruz. So I'd drive down there, and we were learning about grids. So what I started to try to do was to apply grid structures to the coupons, which totally made them unusable and a real mess. Oh, trying see, to, I was thinking the opposite, oh, that they'd be stunning. No, you're trying to jam white space in to type <laughs> that just it won't fit. Oh, my God. Do you still have any of those coupons anywhere? I won't say. (laughs) (laughs) That's a yes. Okay, good. I have to get them out of you. So you went to college for fine art, yet you chose to become a designer. How did that happen? There was no such thing as design at Dartmouth College, where I went as an undergrad. Uh, It was called visual studies. It was strictly drawing, painting, and sculpture. I was interested in graphic design. I was interested in type, and I'd been interested in type since I was very young. My uncle was a a calligrapher, a a world-class calligrapher, and bought me a speedball pen set. And so I just did that on my own. When I decided to go to college, this is the thing. My mother was pushing me to go to art school, which mothers don't usually do. No, they don't. And I refused. Was she the sister of the uncle? She was the other side of the family. Okay. Uh, But she thought, oh, you have this talent. You need to use it. But I still was a math major. And so I refused. I went to Dartmouth College, and I started majoring in math because I thought that's the hard thing. That's the thing that I'm going to need. I was the practical one in the family saying, I need to have a career, and I can't have a career just drawing letters. So that's what I did. And I I was a double major with math and art, and then the math slowly faded away. As it became more theoretical, it became colder to me, and art became more interesting. But Dartmouth at the time was not the hotbed of art education. When I graduated, as far as career development goes, they had nothing to tell me. I mean, not that many. Most people who are art majors end up either becoming architects or moving back into their father's firm doing business, you know, and they just did the art because that got them through college. But I really wanted to go further, but there was nowhere for me to go, at least as far as I knew. I didn't want to be in advertising at the time. And graphic design was just this glimmering thing that I had seen. While I was at school, that's when I first saw Pushpin Graphic, which suddenly I just could point to that and say, that's what I want to do, just the, the liveliness of that kind of work. So you didn't study design in college. You had this realization about your hackiness, um, (laughs) for lack of a better word, Uh in your 30s. So was that job in Oakland the first job you had out of school? How did you end up getting your job in <laughs> in, in graphic design? And oh, you're man. laughing, so this is this means it's going to be interesting. Well, after school, you know, again, I was very naive. And no one in my family had, well, my sister went to college, but only like a local college. So when I came back home afterwards, my mom said, well, you now you have to get a job. So the only thing to do to get a job it seemed, was look in the classified ads. Yes, that's how I got my first (laughs) job. And I ended up 
just looking at the first ad that needed any kind of design, and I ended up pasting up for the U.S. government. It was a contract pasting up mortality statistics. They had these huge computer banks, and they spit out these sheets and sheets and sheets of statistics, and you just put them on boards. You draw the crop marks. You know, sometimes you make photo stats. On to the next one. And you did it for eight hours a day. And I just thought, okay, well, I guess this is what I'm supposed to do. But you must have loved it with the math, the statistics, and mm, design. No, no, no. Not after no, eight hours a day, no, right? No, no. There was nothing creative about it. I used to cut out all of these designs out of the white area with an X-Acto knife just to give myself something interesting to do. And I got into a lot of trouble for that. <laughs> Wasting time. Yes. Eventually, <laughs> I, I, I kept moving to another government contract, learning a little bit more about design and layout, and then finally I made the break and moved to San Francisco. In your 30s, in your Mm -hmm. early to Mm mid-30s, you decide to change your whole life, and you decide that you want to go to graduate school, and you apply to the Crime Book Academy of Art, Mm -hmm. and you describe it as follows. You said, on one especially despondent night, it suddenly hit me. Perhaps it wasn't too late for me to apply. Even though I was 33, maybe my career wasn't beyond repair, Rarely have I had a moment of such lucid revelation. I was literally jolted awake. It's hard to believe that I hadn't thought of this earlier, but I suppose it was simply the right time. The next morning, I called Cranbrook and meekly asked if they accepted older students. I was reassured and began the process. Now, you had applied to Cranbrook before, many, many, many years earlier, and you were accepted. Correct. Yet, and that's no easy feat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you decided not to go. Correct. Were you depressed when you were turned down? I mean, were you surprised? No, I, I re- actually wasn't surprised because I could see that my portfolio wasn't that strong in retrospect. And when you're there, you kind of see other people's portfolios. And I kind of got really psyched out by the kinds of questions people were asking, the sorts of conversations. Oh, it's daunting having. being there. It's such an incredible <laughs> place. Even, I mean, I know that the McCoys have left and now Elliot Earls is running the department, right. but I was there about a year and a half ago and it was mm-hmm. magical, mm-hmm. life-changing, and I was there for two days. It know? didn't feel magical, though, at the time. I was just scared to death. But that's a good thing, right? Well, well maybe in retrospect. <laughs> so you, were you scared to death the first time and the second time? I mean, was that was that fright sort of all the way through both experiences? <laughs> it's a thread through my whole life, I oh, think. Oh, honey, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a different kind of one because at that time I was really passionate and I realized that I needed classes. And, and they, they were actually, they were very nice to me when they explained when they... why I wasn't going to get in. So, but you didn't take no for an answer. You went back to night school. You studied typography, design. You had never taken a design class, so now you were taking them. That's right. How did you understand what you were doing? Like, what did you tell yourself? Your hope was to reapply based on all of this work you were doing and then enter into this new experience in your mid-30s. Right. I mean, looking back, one would say I was trying to reinvent myself, but I I didn't think I invented myself in the first place yet. So even just Mm. trying to mold some kind of identity, I suppose. But again, all I knew was I didn't want to do what I was doing. I saw that there was all this interesting stuff out there. I didn't understand it all, but I wanted to. And I felt that the most difficult to understand design was coming out of Cranbrook at the time. And so I thought I needed to pick the school that was going to be the most difficult, not just to get in, but the most difficult to understand. 
It's so interesting. I, I sort of did the same thing, but mm. not going back to school. I left the job that I was working mm. at and I ended up wanting to try to get a job at the heart at what I considered to be the very best design firm at mm. the time mm-hmm. and and got a job there, but not as a designer because they thought I was such a terrible designer. Oh. But, but that's a, that's another story <laughs> for another time. So you were at school at night. You mm-hmm. continue to work during the day. You would drive down to Santa Clara for the classes. Mm-hmm. When did you when did you intern at Studio Dunbar? Immediately after Cranbrook. Okay, so that was that, that was summer. the one bit of your history that I couldn't quite fit time wise. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what was that like? That must have been. I mean, you hear you went from this extraordinary life changing experience mm-hmm. in Detroit mm-hmm. to then Studio Dunbar. And what was that like? Well, it was. it's interesting because I got there because I won this competition called the Pentagram Prize, which was a writing competition. It was the first time they were trying to advocate writing designers who would write about design. And, and was this through Pentagram Design, the firm? Yeah, yeah. And it was. this was in 1992, I guess. And they just put out a call for entries. And I had written some work. And Lorraine Wilde was there at Cranbrook teaching a semester there. And she had suggested that I enter this essay in the prize. And then the the winner of the prize won a one-month internship at any number of studios around the world. Wow. And I picked Studio Dunbar because it had an affiliation with Cranbrook already. And uh, it seemed like an exciting adventure. So I did. And they extended it to a full three-month internship. While I was there, and so when you came back, well, what was the, what was? Tell us what one of the the biggest things you might have learned from Studio Dunbar. Uh, Garrick Dunbar was is an um, amazing person who is probably the most forward thinking and adventurous of anyone there, and he was you know the oldest guy there. But he was like this this pixie that would just run around and mess up people's designs. People were working very sternly on something. He would come by and draw on it. Oh. And, and he just and he looked at his interns as these kinds of special sidekicks. And so he would take you on, you know, he would just tell you in the morning, We're we're driving to Rotterdam. So come on, let's go. And he would take me to places and suggest things because he was really involved in the arts there too, in in theater, theater Zebelt and other kinds of things like that. So it was very important to him. Uh, and so he wanted me to come along with him on as many of these excursions as he could. So, That's amazing. Yeah. What yeah, an incredible experience. So when you got back, is that when you started Appetite Engineers? No, no. Uh, that was a couple of years off. That wasn't until 97. So there was this four-year gap. And what did you do in that four-year gap? Um, whatever I could. I <laughs> All I wanted to do honestly, when I came back to San Francisco, was just work at one of the firms there. I mean, that was originally my goal, just to get out from this marketing firm into a real design studio. Yes. But what had happened was the work I had done at Cranbrook was so eccentric and so personal that it swung my portfolio, like, really far in the other direction. And it was very hard getting interviews. All I could surmise was that I wasn't good material to work in a studio because I seemed like I was going to be hard to take direction probably because there was a confidence that had developed in my work, unbeknownst to me, that I imagine they saw as someone who's on a trajectory, on a path, and so why would he want to work at a studio to adapt someone else's aesthetic. That's actually true. Yeah, uh, but I didn't know that. All I wanted to do was to work in a studio, and I was happy to adapt an aesthetic. (laughs) I did not want to have my own business. My father ran his own business. He was a wedding photographer, and 
it was kind of a disaster in the long run. I just thought, you know, I'm not a business person. I want to do art. I want to do these things, but I don't want to be responsible for other people and have to worry about that side of it. So that was that was like the last thing I ever wanted to do. And here I am running my own business. So well, go figure. In those four years, it must have seemed incredibly ironic mm-hmm. to have gone back to pursue what was in your heart and then come out of that experience unable to fulfill what was in your heart. Well, yeah, except maybe it was telling me something that was more important. At that time, that's when Speak Magazine began and all of these other projects started to reveal themselves to me. For our listeners that might not be aware of this groundbreaking (laughs) magazine, and I say that with all the sincerity in my heart, um, can you describe it? The magazine itself? Mm -hmm. Please. Oh, man. Well, it started out, Dan Dan Rileri, he was a young businessman who wanted to create a magazine about fashion and music. And he thought he didn't have any great aspirations, but he wanted it to be interesting design. And he had gotten my name from Kathy McCoy because he had seen like Cranbrook work. And so he called her up and said, who might I ask to design this magazine? So um, I had never done a magazine before, and he had never done one before. And so it it began with just trying to do a, a, a promo kit, a press kit, before the magazine even existed. And I don't know if you know the whole history of it, but, you know, I was hired to do it. I was fired. He sued me. I sued him. We hated each other. He rehired me months later to actually do the first issue. It was this whole love-hate relationship, which actually made our bond pretty strong in the long run. Yeah, I, um, it seems like you had a real Lennon-McCartney kind of relationship. <laughs> well, Dan turned out to be much more brilliant than he ever thought he was. He originally just had editors, but realized that, you know what, I can edit this as well as the people I'm hiring. So he became the editor and one of the writers, and I became the designer, and we sat across from each other in this big warehouse space, and it was really just the two of us. There were some other writers who, you know, contributed to us, but on a day-to-day basis, it was just the two of us. People would come and want to visit the uh, the offices of Speak Magazine and expect it to be bustling, filled with all these people doing all this artwork, and then they see it was just the two of us. And you spent an awful lot of time doing the design of this magazine. It was the thing that I did, and it came out quarterly. For a while, we tried it bi-monthly, went back to quarterly, and the entire time because I was the only designer, and I created most of the artwork from scratch, um, took the photographs, did all of the little cut-and-paste things that had to be done, yeah. And I also read that Dan would sometimes assign 7,000-word articles so that you were forced to allow some pages to be only text. Right. But then you got around that, too. (laughs) Well, I started messing with the the text itself because I typed it all in myself because I wanted to. It was a way of reading the article, and it slowed me down to really be thinking about it. Uh, Eventually, we moved to a smaller format, which is what really made a lot of the pages basically text only. Uh, One of the reasons he wanted that is because advertisers, the very few that we ever got— didn't want any ads to be against any pages that were designed because it would take away from their ads. And so we didn't have very many pages that didn't have any design in it. So that was part of his strategy. 
by making the article so long, the fiction really long, it would force some of those pages to be available for advertisers. Now, I, I also read that you felt that your design somehow thwarted the success of getting advertisers for the magazine. <laughs> Do you really think that? Well, the the thought was that the, the design was too too strong and in, in too loud, and so that the ads couldn't compete with it in a way. Ad, advertisers like to be in magazines that were much more sedate. Um, we didn't think it was a problem. We thought they'd want to be mixed in with all of that, but that wasn't... I mean, there were always excuses that they would come up with. So in your extraordinary book, and I and I use that word only as a placeholder because it's not even a good enough word to use to describe your book. It is beautiful, then gone. You write that after Speak ended, you went through what you called a workaholic's dilemma, not knowing what to do without the work. And I'm wondering how you got past that, or did you get past that? Well, one thing I try to do is fill up my time with the projects that I get. And so... I'm a big advocate of taking a lot of time with a project or doing d- design made difficult is one of the things that I kind of coined by at that time, finding the hard way to do something because it would lead to something that you couldn't predict instead of design made simple uh, to go in the other direction. So the projects that I would get, and they were, you know, I would get some along the way, I would try to keep developing. And then I started doing work for Appetite Engineers. When I didn't have projects per se, I would just invent some that I would then create these promo projects to to send out to people. I want to talk about the style of of your work. There are many, many opinions of it. Um, (laughs) In It Is Beautiful Then Gone, you write, people talk about the randomness of your work, which bothers you, um, that you're not looking for the random quality, but more of a kind of rawness. How else would you describe the work that you do, your style of work? One thing I say is I, I try to take an an art approach to design. In other words, trying to develop a body of work that holds together. So there are certain things I'm always searching for. I'm looking for connections from one project to the next. So they tend to hold, at least I hope, they hold together through these these kinds of strains of, of exploration. One of the things that is really important to me is the idea of juxtaposition, putting one thing next to another thing and seeing how they resonate. And that began in Speak Magazine as trying to find ways to bring the old and the new together or two distant old things, bring them next to each other and try to create something that starts to feel alive um, that way. So that's one of the the main strains of my work, uh, when I can use ephemera, all these found bits, and, and start to put them together. And the other is to working with my hands and working with materials and really trying to understand the material world and the kinds of properties that are invested in paper and ink uh, and water and in glass, all these kinds of things. And how can you bring them into life on a page so that they all start to connect to each other as if the designer were not even there. Now, the materials that you use, tape, mm-hmm. cardboard, copy paper, pencil, wax, these things feel very impermanent. You also talk about how things can be very beautiful and then gone. Mm-hmm. Talk about the idea of time in your work. 
Oh, well, that's a, that's a big factor. And that, that ties in with the whole melancholy of design. Well, the men, melancholy of your design. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, right, right. But, but design in a, longer, a larger sense, too, in some ways. The idea, one, one thing I'm always trying to find is that connective tissue between the past and the present and the impossibility of holding time still and working with materials that do fall apart very easily, like old mechanicals did yes. right, with wax, where they eventually would get brittle and fall apart. So looking for materials that are kind of mundane or can easily crumble, I think that's all part of it, just like memories can crumble, and looking at the materiality of our lives and how that eventually erodes and falls apart, leaving memories which then eventually fade. I mean, that sounds very kind of sad, I know, but it sounds beautiful. But it's very it's it's very deep and it's part of being human. And it's something that's really important to me and something I try to get across to my students, to other people, and hopefully it's it bubbles up through the work. Do you find it difficult to be considered experimental? Well, experimentation is so often misunderstood. When uh, in, in, in schools, when students are told to experiment, often what they really do is make things that look experimental. Mm. And that's far from being experimental. Experimentation requires that you do things where you don't know what's going to happen. So one of the ways of doing it is work with materials that are very tenuous, that you, know, you build stacks of things that may fall down, or you put it through lots of different processes. You start with drawing, scan it in, work with it digitally, output it, build on it, photograph it. So that by by being really fluid in how you look at each stage of your work and staying absolutely open-minded and your eyes very open to things happening in the margins, I think that's really where experimentation happens. It's about creating things that didn't happen before. You're not trying to imitate something that looks like something else. You're just really exploring the materials and their relationship to type or text or image directly. It seems when you have that much unpredictability in the outcome that there must be an awful lot of outcomes that you reject. Absolutely. That's part of being willing to um, experiment is being willing to let it fail and understanding that, to be very self-critical so you don't force a design just because you spent three days building something and you photograph it and it just doesn't work. You kind of have to let it go because you can always use it for something else. But I tell my students that, that that's really important, that you invest yourself in the experiment, but then you step back and really put a cold eye to it and you really analyze it. And then you either can go back and make it better or you let it go. How do you know when something that you're working on is good? <laughs> That's the biggest thing is is how to evaluate, how to set up criteria about your work or about anybody's work. And the first thing you have to do is to, to talk about it out loud, to really discuss if something draws you in, to speak very clearly about what it is that draws you in. Is it the way the light acts on the type? Is it the play of textures? Is it the 3D, 2D interplay? Whatever that is, very specifically, then you have to say, well, okay, now how can I push that? Whatever that is that makes me stop and say, whoa, something's happening here. How can I push it to the next step? And then you keep pushing it until you feel that maybe you've gone too far. And then you work within that bracket of where things seem the most possible. 
and you keep looking at how you can then apply it to the project you're working on at the same time. Your work in all of its chaotic, luscious, voluptuousness, (laughs) it also feels very deliberate and so specific. Even in what might seem to be chaos, there is this very almost mathematical type of structure to it. And you talk about precise articulation in It Is Beautiful Then Gone, and you talk about it being a very valuable skill. And I'm wondering how one can learn that skill or one can understand what it means to be precisely articulate in design. One of the things is the the balance between absolute structure and then allowing that structure to start to fall apart. But you, you need to know how to work with structure, too, and then how to kind of dial it up and dial it down and then allow other things to happen. I mean, that's part of even being in a city like this, where there are very clear structures, but then there are people that walk through that structure where things can happen. So being really understanding of the characterization of the materials that are going to have a free life within the structure and then the structure itself. And so when you do like book design, which I do a lot of, uh, you need to develop the structure and a language that's going to work within that. And it's that tension between the two, I think, that makes the page or makes the book alive. It's what makes a city alive, all of these things. It's the relationship between an absolute structure and this looseness of things moving in and out or even breaking down the structure in times. So that gets back to the juxtaposition. Yes, absolutely. And the unpredictability. Yes. It's almost like setting up a theater, a stage, where you articulate the characters really precisely, then you put them on the stage and tell them to go act. And you step back. I mean, you're really writing the script, but you step back like a filmmaker, right, and allow them to be these things on that stage. And and you think about what you're looking at, not who's making them talk. And that, I think, is like when design moves to this higher level, when it's actually alive in front of you. I read an interview wherein you stated that you're always amused at the training of designers to be efficient in arriving at their solutions. And <laughs> that in your mind, there's absolutely nothing intrinsically efficient about design and that that efficiency is based on a business model, which as which is fine as, it, as far as it goes, but it is a mistake to pretend otherwise. And I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that a little bit. Thank you for bringing that up, Debbie. Oh, <laughs> why is that, Martin? Do you want to talk about it's, that in it's, particular? It's really important, um, I think, to, un- to, to understand the difference between that. And what, what I find really fascinating is that most design programs are within art schools or within art departments. And yet, to look towards the, the art side to see how do they do their work? How do they move from one stage to another? And most you know, drawing classes or painting classes, they probably don't say, now you have two weeks to do this painting, and or in two weeks I need three landscapes and a portrait, and you got to <laughs> yeah. have them all framed, mounted on the wall, and then we're going to come in and talk about them. That it's much more of an organic process of really exploring. And I think with design, too, now I understand that it is a business and that people do need to have deadlines. But when you're in school, is a chance to really develop process and to really explore, I think, unhindered by things like client demands, to really understand how materials work, how type works, how structure works. And 
that takes a lot of time. Um, when I give projects, usually I give one project for the entire semester because that's the only chance they have to dig really deeply into details, if it's a book design project, getting all the way down to the footnotes and page numbers in a way of developing a language that becomes a part of the book, that becomes alive with the book. Otherwise, it's just it's just applying uh, rules and principles and, and being kind of clever. And I'm so not about being clever or being funny, any of, any of those kinds of things. I'm really more about just watching the world as it works and trying to bring that into the work. And it's a slow process. So design made difficult, design made inefficient, these are all things that I'm big fans of, which means you often have to work at night. You have to you know, put in the extra time to let these things happen. But once you do, then you have something real. Martin, one of the things that you showed me before we started our interview was a small portfolio of some of your recent drawings. And it seems like this type of drawing is new to the type of work that you're doing. Can you talk about that a little bit, some of the more recent work you're doing? Right. Um, The drawings are something I've done on the side. One of the things I find is I need to keep practicing my eye and hand relationship. So when I don't have a project where I'm doing collage work or cutting things or putting things together, I just started doing these drawings in my notebook as just a way of practicing. I called them bus drawings originally because I would do them on the bus. And I would work with a very sloppy pen. And so the jitteriness of the bus and the inaccuracy of the pen and me trying to balance all of that created this tension, this between all of these things, trying to control it. Um, And they just developed over, it's been about a year and a half that I've been doing those just completely on the side. And I've only recently started taking them out of the notebook and started putting them on larger sheets of paper. And they're, they're very intricate, just one mark next to another mark next to another mark uh, as ways to just develop understandings of how things mass together, how neighborhoods kind of form, bringing in architectural lines and how an intrusive line pushes these marks out of the way. So they're abstract, but they're based on giving all of the uh, elements a characterization, giving it materiality. So do you see some of your practice moving more in the fine art direction with drawings like this? Or do you are you going to incorporate that into your design work? I don't know yet. Ah, um, good. It's, it's really a separate thing. I don't show it to many people. And again, like I said, it's a way of practicing. So it would be interesting once I've done a number of these, as I go back into the collage or type collage work, how that has affected it. I've drawn a lot in in the past, but I almost never have included it in my artwork because I've always been too insecure about it. But this is also a way of developing a security, especially when I start to show them to people and talk about them, uh, that I could bring them forward. And so a lot of it is just how a designer might do drawings as opposed to now I'm a fine artist. I still feel like I'm a designer, but how I'm using the ways that I'm exploring the world in a, a drawing format. Now, I know at one point you considered yourself an outsider, Martin, and you even went as far as (laughs) stating that your biggest evolution has been in seeing your own eccentricities Mm. and outsider status as not a handicap, but as a valuable point of view worthy of expression. And so I have two questions about that. First, do you still really see yourself as an outsider? Yes. Really? Mm -hmm. Why? Why is Uh, that? it's, it's It's more of a state of mind. I think I'm I'm very introverted, actually, and all through my life, I spent all my time alone in these worlds that I would—I would stay indoors. I'm a very indoor person. 
And I like that feeling. And I like making worlds inside of worlds that I inhabit. And design was one way to start bringing those worlds out into the outside world and share them with other people. But I'm always, I always feel somewhat separate, that I'm always observing when I'm participating or supposed to be participating. I'm always looking at how other people are doing things. I'm always looking from the inside out at the world. At least I feel that I am. And do you really find that to be eccentric? Um, I think so. <laughs> oh, it's gotten to a point where, you know, my own taste, I'm not so concerned about things that I like, like music that I like or art that I like, worrying about whether that's cool or not. There are lots of, you know, marshmallowy music that I actually really enjoy that make me very happy. Like and, what? Like what? Oh, like the Carpenters, for oh, example. Oh, I do too. Okay, I love yay. the Carpenters. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I'll mix that with everything else. But, you know, it used to be that I would never like share that I would never do these kinds of things around other people and now I just I don't care that I'm more interested in discovering these other things and what I particularly like is when when these things collide so when my internal world collides with that external world and what happens there or the kinds of things that I like privately and then find that someone else likes them like you Debbie yes oh my um, God. and then these yes. these things these bridges start to happen it's still maybe eccentric but it doesn't mean eccentric away from everything in the world. Well, I think they also make for very beautiful and very interesting juxtapositions. To see some of Martin Vinitsky's work, please head on over to appetiteengineers.com. Thank you so much for being on the show, Martin. You are just a gift. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.